Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, we talk to a physicist who has struggled with mental illness and wonders why the mental health system lacks the quantitative rigor that physics benefits from. But first, Physics World's Margaret Harris is in conversation with the co-founders of a UK-based startup company that develops software for simulating quantum photonic devices. They explain why there is a need to understand the fundamental physics behind the devices that underpin the latest quantum technologies. I'm joined today by Mirella Kolova and Gabi Slavtova, who are the co-founders of a startup called Quantopticon. Mirella is the chief executive officer and Gabi is the chief scientific officer. Quantopticon developed software for simulating quantum photonic devices, and the company was recently declared the runner-up in the annual SPIE Startup Challenge, held every year as part of the Photonics West Conference. Mirella, Gabi, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank Thank you, Margaret. We're so pleased to be invited to this podcast. So I wanted to, if you maybe tell us a little bit more about Quantopticon and what it does. You know, what what sort of problem are you trying to solve? Well, as quantum physicists and material scientists and engineers are working together to build new so-called quantum 2.0 devices, which are exploiting the properties of superposition and entanglement, There is a need to understand the fundamental physical processes occurring within these devices in order to design them better. And so we are developing simulation software that accurately predicts light-matter interactions in the quantum realm. And our software is intended to be utilized as a platform for designing and optimizing solid-state quantum photonic components, networks, and devices. And sort of how did you get the idea to start Quantopticon? You're both physicists, you're both research background. What's it, at what point did you say, oh, we're going to start a company? Well, having worked in quantum and uh, nonlinear semiconductor optics for many years, I was aware of the methods for modeling of lasers or simulations of lasers. However, lasers are classical devices in terms of the statistics of radiation they emit. In recent years, however, we are witnessing a great progress towards the physical realization of Feynman's quantum computing paradigm based on fragile quantum properties such as quantum coherence, superposition and entanglement. Global research efforts are now focused on the development of the next generation quantum technologies and ultimately of a universal quantum computer. The photonics quantum computing modality in principle, in particular, has a great advantage of scalability and speed compared to other quantum computing architectures. I realized that the theory and modeling of these quantum two-type effects is in in its infancy and advanced computational tools are needed in order to model quantum effects and predict the quantum phenomena and the quantum performance of such devices. So Mirella and I decided to found Quantopticon precisely to address this growing need and the lack of such modalities, modeling tools for quantum photonics in particular. We set about with the aim to accelerate the advent of groundbreaking quantum two devices and to facilitate their widespread adoption. How did you both get involved in, in, the, in the company? How did you get to know each other? 
you know, can you? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's always a, an interesting question. And we, we always provide an interesting answer to this question because we're a, a mother and daughter duo. So I've right. known since, I have known Gabby since birth. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best way to do it. Oh, how wonderful. You, you're both in the same field. That's that's lovely. How did you how did you get the company off the ground? You know, what's what was sort of the catalyst to say, OK, right. Now is the point where we're going to start a company together. Well, I think um, there had been a, a sort of a natural buildup of um, the the sort of the readiness of quantum technologies, and that uh, in in the last five years there's been an explosion in progress in this area. And uh, back when we started, we we were sort of anticipating this. Uh, this progress and we thought you know this is the moment where we really need to jump in um, and and get involved to to sort of ride on this wave so we kind of picked the the right moment <laughs> and part of riding, riding in the wave is getting funding right you know how did you get the funding to start your company yeah so in in the very early days we applied for funding from innovate uk which is the uk's innovation agency they provide grants for innovative businesses like ours we teamed up with world leading experimentalists in um, quantum optoelectronics at university of oxford and gallium nitride at the university of cambridge and we wrote a project proposal together the idea was to use indium gallium nitride quantum dots embedded in gallium nitride micropillar cavities as a test bed for our software and the funding we obtained from Innovate UK also helped us to develop a graphical user interface for our software and to accelerate the underlying code. So Gabby and Marilla are speaking to us from different locations now. And Marilla, I think you're, you're in Chicago. What, what brought you there? Well, I am in Chicago purely because we got accepted on um, the United States first quantum accelerator or, or startup accelerator that focuses specifically on uh, ventures that are, are rooted in quantum technologies. So we are we are actually the only UK uh, company or actually non-US company to be accepted on the accelerator. And part of the requirements are to relocate to uh, where Duality is based, and it's based at the University of Chicago. So we are staying here until, or I'm staying here, here until at least um, August this year, and then we'll see. <laughs> and what is what has Duality done for you? How how what what sort of resources have they put in? Cause we actually had them on the podcast several months ago when they were just f first starting up. So it's wonderful actually to catch up with one of the first um, companies they're helping. Yeah, sure. Uh, they've provided a, a wealth of um, uh, support and mentoring and uh, courses, opportunities to sort of, uh, you know, showcase ourselves at uh, high profile events and summits. Um, so it's, it's been incredibly rewarding to be part of this program. And it's complementary to the other uh, Startup Accelerator program that we're part of, which is based in the University of Toronto and is called Creative Destruction Lab. They have a completely different way of uh, uh, supporting ventures, and the two programs are very complementary. So we are we're very yeah we're very lucky to be in both at the same time. Gabby, did you have anything you wanted to add add to that? Well, we are uh, really lucky to to have both at the same time because uh, uh, we can talk to various. Uh, um, mentors and they all have different opinions so we can we, we are getting the best of both worlds <laughs> no 
And, you know, you talk about mentoring and, and the support, you know, what is the, the biggest hurdle you've had to overcome so far um, in, in starting your company and getting it off the ground? Yeah, the, the biggest and most difficult hurdle for us has been to obtain follow-on funding after the Innovate UK project that I mentioned. Um, we had a gap in funding during the COVID pandemic crisis when we had, we had a really hard time. Um, for nearly three years, we repeatedly and unsuccessfully applied to Innovate UK and other UK government agencies, funding agencies. Uh, we spent most of our time writing grant proposals, actually, and not actually developing the company. Um, and these grant, grant proposals were ultimately not chosen for funding. Um, so we had a real low point and we got so discouraged that we started looking for uh, financing from abroad. We managed to emerge from this situation with sacrifices and grit and sheer determination. And finally, the, the European Space Agency came to our rescue, in a sense, by commissioning us to design components for the first ever European quantum encryption satellite. And at around the same time, actually, we also won a significant amount of money from, from the Duality Accelerator when we got upset, accepted on the, the program. And just last month, we were awarded a, a further small sum from SPIE um, in the in the startup challenge competition. So it's it's a bit ironic and slightly sad that we were getting so much we are getting so much recognition from the rest of the world, but not from our home country. I mean, we hope that this will change. Hmm. And it, it's interesting also that you have a, a real diversity of support from you know from space sector, from materials, from photonics. I guess that just shows shows how many different applications there are of, of software like this that can hopefully help model lots of different systems. Yeah, it, we're working to to broaden them even more. So um, first we have to you know concentrate on one or two types of systems to, to develop those properly and address the address our customers' needs uh, in an appropriate manner so that they are you know happy with the service that they're, they're getting. From us, but we have very ambitious plans about developing our software suite so that we can uh, really make a difference in various subsectors of the quantum technology industry. And what do you see as the main challenges for the for the field as a whole? I mean, you're you're broadly in the space of of, of simulating um, quantum photonic devices, simulating quantum systems. You know, what are the big challenges, not just for for Quantopticon, but um, for the field? Well, the main challenge is um, undoubtedly the physical realization of a universal quantum computer. A useful photonic quantum computer that can demonstrate quantum advantage over classical computation needs at least a million interconnected qubits to provide an overhead for quantum error correction. So such large-scale large architectures require ultra-fast operations and interconnects. Hence, the demand from industries to develop high-speed and high-fidelity quantum components, such as, for example, quantum light sources. So a major challenge in quantum computing is to find the scalable and fast architecture, which would ensure the entanglement of a large number of qubits with minimum decoherence and optimized error correction. And this is a formidable task that is currently attacked from many angles and on different platforms, computing platforms. We believe that by creating reliable physical models of quantum phenomena and computer-aided design tools for integrated quantum tonics on a chip will help to develop such highly performing individual components. And these components then need to be entangled 
And here, the computational modeling can help too, similar to the electronic design automation tools used nowadays as a matter of course in electronic circuit design. Morella, do you want to add, add to that, anything to that? Yeah, um, the main challenges in my field. Um, well, uh, the fact is that the quantum industry is uh, it's still emerging and it's, uh, it's not clear how it will grow in the future and how it will develop. And even the biggest experts are not, not clear what, what is going to happen next. So it's, uh, it's very challenging for a new entrepreneur like myself who doesn't have a lot of experience in this area to sort of sort of plan and you know especially make you know long-term plans in several years time about how our company is going to develop and we are aware that we need to be very agile and respond quickly and uh, take take hold of opportunities when they arise and sort of be on the lookout for these things speaking of opportunities you know what are you working on now and what, where do you what do you plan to do in the next few months well, currently we're working on the design modeling and optimization of semiconductor quantum dot-based single photon sources embedded in optical cavities. So we are aiming to exploit cavity quantum electrodynamics and coherent phenomena to produce high-quality single photon sources. And our future plans are to describe a wider range of quantum systems, such as pins in silicon or defects in two-dimensional materials. NV centers in nanodiamonds embedded in photonic structures, for instance, uh, waveguide geometries with couplers, splitters, routers, Maxander interferometers, and different types of optical cavities, such as photonic crystals, microring resonators, and others. But our long term plans are to tackle the problem of generation of multiphoton entangled states, and this is needed for realization of, uh, of quantum computation. Mm -hmm. So from we want to optimize this um, multi-photon entangled sources from the point of view of both geometry and quantum system properties. That's our long-term vision. And one thing that really came out of that is actually that you, you seem to be very sort of platform neutral. There are a lot of different possible ways of making qubits and Gabby, you, you, you listed most of them there. You know, I guess that must be one of the advantages of being a software rather than a hardware company. Uh, yes, but we are uh, focusing on the photonic uh, platform, photonic quantum computing platform, and on solid state uh, photonic quantum computing as well, mm -hmm. semiconductor. And we strongly believe that the future is in um, integrated quantum photonics, mm -hmm. using integrated uh, quantum photonics on a chip. This is the way that we can produce scalable architectures, and it's a natural way. And it has worked already in electronics, so... Uh, we we need to to take this into account. I mean, for for the future developments, it's much more likely to 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 achieve large scale integration using the matured technologies, semiconductor technologies. Marilla, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, yeah, Gabby is right that we are focusing on the photonic modality or the the physical implementation of of qubits. Um, I think our software is also applicable to neutral atoms, so companies like Cold Quanta that are making uh, neutral atom quantum computers. We're thinking about it, but that's a little bit further into further along our, our roadmap. But we were addressing the photonic platform because it's uh, it's really not well addressed so far. 
and we're, we're trying to rectify that and, and make sure that we can uh, really help photonic uh, quantum I think that this is the most promising platform, basically, for quantum computation. Well, Morella and Gabby, good luck as you move on down that, that road and see how things develop. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Mental illness touches the lives of many people, and some can feel powerless within the mental health system. In the next segment, Physics World's Mateen Durrani speaks to a physicist about his experiences with the system, which he describes as bizarre, awful, and completely unscientific. A warning, this interview contains discussions of mental illness, depression, and suicide. Now, if you've never suffered from mental illness before, it can be really hard to imagine what it's like or how horrible it can be. But one physicist who has battled mental illness for more than a decade is Alexander Mendelssohn, who's written about his experiences in a feature in the February issue of Physics World magazine. Now, Alex isn't his real name because he wants to stay anonymous, but fortunately has managed to get through at least the worst of what the illness can do to you. He's also thought long and hard about the treatment he received while he was ill especially from the point of view of him being a physicist. So Alex, lovely to have you on the podcast. Lovely to be here. So um, let's start, wind the clock back right to the beginning, um, people who don't know you. So do you want to say about, you know, how, how did your interest first start in physics as a child? Because it was quite an interesting story about what, what prompted you to get into physics. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's unconventional and we're hitting this straight into the deep end, I suppose. Um, my sister was um, born with a uh, condition called Rett syndrome, which is genetic disorder. A pretty horrible. Uh, I won't go into too many details. But when I was growing up as a kid, I realized that disabled people weren't in, well, didn't exist. They weren't in everyday culture. So I'm, for instance, if it was even if people knew that I had a disabled sister, uh, they'd go, why does your mum come and do this? Why doesn't, or why can't you come here? And I was like, I've got a disabled sister. And, and I didn't, I didn't want to, in, in, I suppose the kindest way, I didn't want to be like everyone else. I didn't want to, I wanted to know what was true. I wanted to know what the truth was out there. Um, because everyone else, it was a sort of half a little bit of a lie. Their lives were a little bit of a lie and I wanted it. So it drove me to physics, really. I wanted to know what was true. Um, and uh, yeah, I caught the bug and away, away, away I went. So yeah, that was kind of, a lot of people, when we asked them that question, they say it was things like looking at the stars or the universe or looking down a microscope. So really it was through your sister's um, problems with her you know, the health that kind of kind of started it. Um, but then obviously, you know, conventionally enough, you went off to university. So you then, you wh why did you want to do a degree in the subject? Um, it was a feeling, again, slight, I suppose, perhaps an unconventional answer. Um, I, I remember this sort of feeling of... Um, it's not so much wow, but it's this sort of deep feeling I had whenever I understood something properly. I mean, I can't really remember before university, but definitely during it, 
Um, the prime example in my head is when it was a bunch of these equations that I had no idea what they meant and what on earth. I had a conception in my head and some equations and I couldn't put them together. Um, but then when I did, this incredibly deep feeling of, my goodness, it was like, uh, it's like you've uncovered a little fleck of paint on the portrait of nature. It's only a fleck, but it's an amazing, it's the most amazing <laughs> fleck you've ever seen of yeah. paint. And um, that's what made me want to do it, keep working hard, trying to keep, try to work hard at it, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. And basically I was, I, I caught the bug. I was away, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's like a lot of people. So then you, you, you started at university in about 2010 and then it was within sort of the start of the second year that you started first getting symptoms of um, depression. Um, so what, what actually happened and what was, what was it like to go through that experience? Um, well, I, uh, the thing I sort of say in my head generally, not really to other people, but in my head is be wary of the positive emotions, not the negative ones, because it's the positive ones that will drive you beyond what that you want to chase and beyond what potentially you are capable, not capable of It's the wrong word, but, um, uh, I, I, worked too hard. I always had this philosophy in my head that if I really wanted to do a PhD, if I wanted to be a good physicist, I had to work hard. Now the problem is, um, uh, you know, again, growing up with a sister, it's difficult a little bit socially. I was generally fine socially, but and okay at university too. But um, because the feeling was so strong in comparison to any of the other feelings, I sort of got more and more involved and there and things instead of getting easier like i thought they would they got harder and harder and harder um i the analogy i like to use uh actually is um like a, if a computer is working at 100 percent effort what it does is well it overheats right using too much energy so what happens is the clock slows down to the processing and it's quite I, it's sort of a similar for my depression. It was sort of a similar type of effect. I'd sort of get to 100% and then slow down. And the problem is I kept pushing, trying to keep pushing that up. The weird thing about people who say you have to give 100% effort is that they've never given 100% effort because 100% effort equals mental illness. It doesn't equal achievement. Um, I learned that the hard way. It's only the mentally ill that actually get to 100% because then that's when things start to go downhill. Mm -hmm. And so emotions, I think I've written the article, emotions lost color. And what I mean by that is not only were they, not only the good emotions, I say the good emotions lost color, the, 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 say the bad ones, they gained more color. They were more ferocious, more uh, horrible, gained sort of more traction in my head. But there's a quality that's lost and I, it's mostly confusion really. Why is I don't think this doesn't seem right. And then you work harder to try to get out of it and you go deeper and deeper. Yeah. 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 It wasn't fun. <laughs> I can imagine it probably wasn't. No, no. And then, so you did your undergraduate degree, you, you got through that and then you, you got your place on a PhD, which was great. And then things really sort of hit a, 
bad turn in the autumn of 2015. So do you want to, and you got prescribed a certain medication. So do you want to remind yourself and everyone listening what, what happened then? Well, again, I was, I was an idiot. Let's put it like way. <laughs> I kept on working, trying in this philosophy of working hard. I took on too much work as well as some pressure. But the main thing was I took on way too much work. And I started for the first time to lose proper functionality. And I don't mean just I couldn't work, that it was difficult to even, you know, make breakfast, etc. And uh, I had had university counseling before, but um, it it's not exact. I didn't realize that it's not really what counseling should be counseling is like a long-term thing i don't really see how a short-term thing had any benefit it did no had very little benefit to me so i took an antidepressant first one first one i'd ever taken um it was an ssri um and a serotonin selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor to spell it out completely um and within about well first first couple of days it was wow this is really working and to anyone out there who think who has a similar experience wow this is really working in the first couple of days just be pretty careful here because that's <laughs> not supposed to happen it's supposed right. to take quite a while and within the fourth day sort of almost out of the blue i remember this sort of energy just i can only really explain it like an energy it was it was it was just building and building and i was washing dishes at the time and i the instinct was just get to the sofa i don't know why it was get to the sofa get to the sofa and moments later i'm basically uh, in this fetal position shaking uncontrollably and a feeling i've never had before in my life and and generally not since was this oozing sensation coming from sort of deep within my brain it was as if i described it at the time as if adrenaline was was flooding was actually flooding my entire being mm. right and then after that having never experienced any anxiety symptom in my life and i have to distinguish what anxiety what i mean by anxiety it's just not worry i mean as if it's 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 um uh, scary. It's 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 you lose functioning from having anxiety condition, and it's somewhat hard to get rid of. Whereas worry is quite easy. You just go up, go go away, and then, mm. <laughs> then it goes away. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with uh, yeah, I had uh, then suddenly I had the most severe form of of most of the anxiety symptoms. I guess severe panic attacks. First panic attack was the most severe one, and perhaps actually. Uh, I won't go into it, but yeah, something over the top. But I do want to stress that you know, antidepressants aren't bad. Like they're not, they've helped a lot of people. Um, and I'm definitely not saying go out and do it. What I'm, what I'm saying is that uh, as doctors keep explaining, not explaining to me, telling me it's rare, it's rare. It's no use to me, but it is rare. It is true. Hmm. What happened to me was exceedingly rare and weird. I guess and I don't, I've, I've known plenty of people where it just hasn't been the case and it's helped a lot. Um, but yeah, I was suddenly now way past not functioning and uh, yeah, it's not exactly the uh, brightest moment of my no. life. 
So then that was, well, I mean, it sounds, I mean, I can't even begin to think what it must have been like. I mean, I worked with you on the article that you did for physics also. I kind of feel I've lived as, through it to a certain extent from what you told me. But um, I mean, obviously, you then managed to carry on with your PhD and you, d- you did get your PhD in 2019. I mean, how, how on earth did you, you get through those those next four years? I mean, it, it sounded pretty horrible and you needed a lot of toughness to get through it. Uh it wasn't easy. <laughs> I won't say it was easy. Um, Treatment-wise, uh, I I was scared of taking another antidepressant, but I, I did. But as it turned out, that was more of a poison than an actual treatment because, uh, long story short, I thought I was being given a, uh, a different type of antidepressant, but it turned out at the doses I was given, it was the same one that had caused the whole horrific thing in the first place um but uh how did i cope well when it happened i I sort of remember this grit this sort of grit waking up i'm not saying that it's something that i it was me it was my character i got gritty there was something deep inside that just suddenly woke up when my life was in danger and then uh, and that helped with the first bit but really, um, during uh, eight months out, so I have to say I had eight months out of the PhD, and during that period of time, is I had what I called an emotional education, which is um, people think that counseling is some sort of treatment, but um, uh, that, well, there's a lot of th- people think they're being treated, but from my experience, I, in about 10 sessions in, I thought, this isn't treatment. This is an education. I've been <laughs> education my entire life. It's definitely an education. Um, and uh, so what I discovered when I start, got back to the PhD with this horrendous half-working brain, not really half-working, 10th-working brain, was that the greatest inefficiencies in working life, probably, but in definitely in my PhD, was due to emotions or mismanagement of emotions. And the best example I can give about that, I think, is how feedback is done. Not very many people are good at feedback. Um, the reason usually is because what usually people do is they just splurge out sort of, this is not correct, this isn't correct. And so the person receiving it goes and has, oh my goodness, I have so much I have to do. <laughs> and they'll end up procrastinating or, or dropping other stuff to focus just on this horrendous thing that they have to so much work they have to put into this whereas um if you looked at it as if it was some sort of if you're trying to paint the picture that it's that when you're giving the feedback that to put the that it's a look how great this piece of work could be in amongst it it's not easy it's extremely difficult i'm not saying i can do it i just know that uh, in my experience of when this has happened that it's been a lot easier to do. Um, but when that's sprinkled in, when you are saying, well, look, look how great this work could be in amongst the corrections or because the idea of a, of a, of a, uh, of a piece of work, what you want from feedback is for the work to be completed in the, the, the best quality work to be completed in the shortest possible time. Um, And to do that, it's much better if a person looks at the work and goes, wow, look how amazing this work could be. Look how much, if I just do this and this and this and this, it could be really, really good. Um, 
The other thing uh, I would say uh, is that I had the most sensitive instrument to stress probably on the whole account. Uh, on the whole campus. It was like an experiment. I could do experiments with my head. I was sensitive to any little stress, which <laughs> is a, a tremendous negative on one hand, but also a positive. I could see what would be stressing me out and I could adjust to it. So I realized that 20 minutes is basically all I could do work-wise before my brain started to lose focus or conk out. So I meditated every 20 minutes for three years during work. I wow. worked. Wow. I worked from eight or nine till two or three for three or four days a week and for three years um, because I made because because emotions were um, uh, I had now optimized my emotional way of being I had a significant advantage over a lot of other people so I could work and I don't mean that I was producing more work what I mean is that the work that I was producing was quality was going to be used in my thesis or used in a paper whereas before before my illness only about 10 percent of the work i produced was going to be and the mm. rest of it was would have just been chucked away so the answer is i didn't really see it as coping and that was kind of half the problem because i was just as good as everyone else and i i think and my supervisor thought as well i did a good thesis it wasn't a it wasn't like i was struggling with this thing it was good it was okay well at least okay right and so i didn't see it and that was kind of half the problem and slowly but surely my disease progressed um until uh the end of the phd um yeah i was just saying no one ever talks about the benefits of mental illness <laughs> only the negatives yeah. So you did find ways to sort of cope with it and be work efficiently and get, you know, get some really good quality work done. So you got, you know, well done. You, you got your PhD in 2019. But then interestingly, after that, I mean, you ended up, you know, diagnosing yourself. Um, and, you know, why did you have to do that? How come it was reliant on you to work out what the diagnosis was? Well, I remember at the time, at the end of the PhD, I was exhausted, clearly, um, and then that meant that the there was a component of my illness that I said at the time I could not touch, that I couldn't do in any sort of thing that I couldn't do any did any perspective or technique or any sort of counseling. I just couldn't touch. And it was a generalized anxiety part of it. And it just took over my entire brain, the worst period of it all. So I basically got back to somewhat functioning and then went to even worse place. Um, so, uh, I, I, it took, I should say it wasn't that quick. It took a long time, but it happened. It was sort of, but seeing a bunch of psychiatrists, et cetera. And I realized that, um, what psychiatry in psychiatry, what you usually do is they say, well, you've got this condition or that condition or whatever. But I realized it was actually better to look at the drugs and what did the drugs do? What did the treatments, what, not so much symptoms, what were the what were the responses of people on these certain drugs and what they did? And I know I write that I say I looked up the guidelines, but what I, well, I also I did a lot more than that. I looked and saw even anecdotes of. I was looking for a this sort of generalized anxiety symptom, a clear and obvious anecdote where someone went, "Oh, I had this symptom and it went away." So clear and obvious, right? There's also plenty where it was sort of the other way. So it's not as if there's no risk, but. I realized that okay, pregabalin seems to have seems to have done this to quite a few anecdotes and also in papers and et cetera. 
but then I so I, I realized, well, how do I get pregabalin prescribed? And I looked and I thought, oh, generalized anxiety disorder. Oh, this would be easy. I looked back in my notes and it um, wasn't there. I'd never been, I'd never been diagnosed as, a, so, so I say notes, I meant the psychiatrist notes, diagnoses, and I'd never mm. been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And so essentially I had to kind of go to my current psychiatrist, which is a good one, I might add. Um, I said, like, um, I think I have generalized anxiety disorder. Can I, you know, and pregabalin here is the main treatment to, not the main one, the, the next in line that I can receive. Can I have pregabalin? And yeah. So it means to an end, basically, more than mm. anything. Um, so, I mean, one of the main points of the article that you wrote for Physics World is that you kind of felt that the way you were being treated by psychiatrists was um, was kind of unscientific. And it took you as a physicist to sort of think about what the treatment was in a more scientific way. I thought, why, why did I think it was unscientific? I thought it was unscientific because I gave all of psychiatrists around the same information. So I had five or so psychiatrists that I saw in the not short space of time or quite a long period of time, but essentially I gave them the same information. And I got 10 different diagnoses and none of those diagnoses was the actual main problem that I mm. had. And so that doesn't happen in science or it's extremely rare that something like that, extremely rare that something like that would happen. And I suppose the other thing was that I walked or the main, what I say in my perspective, what I feel like my main point of my story is that I went from a lab where I would take the positions of atoms in a crystal, the average positions anyway, down to the picometer level, take them to people. And I walked into a psychiatrist's office where they said, rate your mood on one to, on a scale of one to 10. And that disparity is the main underlying story for me is is of my story anyway i just couldn't i couldn't like put this together uh why why mm. was it like this because this is nowhere near what i had been in and then i mean i think i suppose you know this is something you didn't get onto into the article in the article because there wasn't room for it but um you know, you've got various, you've had various thoughts about how you would like to see, you know, treatments improved in future, you know, what, what, what would sort of changes would you like to see um, among sort of how mental illness is treated? Um, I could, you know, I, I could tell you loads of solutions um, from uh, prevention. So I said emotion, it's an emotional education. So treat it like an education. I'm not saying everyone should have counseling at five. That's not going to solve the problem. It's going to be more subtle than that. How emotions are, are how these emotions are thought about and in school, in schools and how that in, in sort of introducing sort of counseling types, counseling type things, strategies at a very young age. Um, and another one for the general population is everyone see one counselor once it could be a campaign moves the stigma overnight, essentially, at least with counseling. Hardest thing to do is get into a counseling room and all the way to completely overhauling the entire psychiatric, um, psychological and neuroscience system. I mean, we have three subjects for one cell type, which, and in physics, we have one subject for the all the simple processes in the entirety of the universe, something's that's not 
it's just not right. That's that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But if I'm honest, nothing's going to change until the mentally ill are seen as valuable. Um, we experience the extremes of emotions. We are soldiers. We are warriors at war, right? And so, if you're able to bring us back, what we can add to society in general is uh, help. Is an is a um, empathetic view on what normal people go through in their everyday lives in terms of grief, in terms of anger, in terms of anything emotional, because we had to cope for a very mm. long time. And I'm not afraid to say that I'm valuable. I have knowledge and experience and a story that I feel is worth being told. And I think I can be helpful, even in my state, which I know that it sounds like I'm all everything's all fine it really isn't i'm not i'm about halfway there i think but you know the struggle for me is having almost no platform i've been trying to do this for the last seven years even during this i've been trying to write things and having very little opportunity to put it on it's it's uh this initial this article was actually meant to be for the psychiatric community but i got zero engagement it's 10 times harder for me to reach out to other people than for other people to reach out to me. So um, what I would like to see, I guess, in answer to your question, I wanna see people care about the mentally ill because at the moment we're just dirt at the side of the road. Yeah. Well, that's pretty, uh... all right. Well, thanks Alex for talking to Physics World. Um, I wish you all the best for the rest of your career and um... Yeah, thanks very much again for writing the article for us, which is on the um, Physics World website. And um, wish you all the best for the rest of your career. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Thanks very much. I would say not a problem, but it's <laughs> that significant <laughs> problem. But yes, thank you very much for having me and giving me the opportunity to speak. Thank you very much, Matt. And you've been very helpful. Thank you. Alex's article is called A Physicist's Experience of the Mental Health System, and it can be found in the Features section of the Physics World website. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Mirella Kolova, Gabby Slavcheva, Alex Mendelssohn, Margaret Harris, and Mateen Durrani for appearing in this episode. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. Physics World.